0: Hello, and welcome back to Dark Stories from the Campfire, and the third and final part of our anniversary story. For this episode, we continue on with our three companions, as a third of our group tells his story. We present to you Anniversary Party Part 3. The maid, having finished her tale, laid back down and folded herself in, covering herself tighter in a blanket, for it had grown colder while she spoke removing his arms from behind his head the farmer turned to his side and said what an excellent story our friend the maid has told us the maid said not a word but merely stared deep into the fire before them watching the flames and the shadows they create dance against the trees the undertaker now knowing it was his turn to share his tale, leaned back against the tree and removed his boots after some deep thought and hesitation the undertaker cleared his throat and turned to his companions and thus we begin The Undertaker's tale. It's the eyes I'm drawn to, shallow, pale, and distant. For regardless of how one dresses the body in preparation for their final passing, the eyes always reveal the truth. So for many, the closing of the eyes to give the illusion of slumber is far more preferable than them staring back at you, reminding you. And I still remember the first time I saw the eyes of the dead all those years ago beneath the lamplight and drenched in water, and have yet to find a way to pull away from them. In my youth, long before I began to engage in my present occupation, I was something of an actor. I fell into the role more or less by accident, as this was not, I should say, something of a lifetime pursuit of mine of being a performer, but rather a profession I took on out of necessity. You see, I was something of a master juggler, a skill that, for obvious reasons, I had little use for in the small, rented plot of land my family lived on, but proved more than beneficial during festivals, where, standing next to the stall my mother and father had erected to sell vegetables, baskets, and pottery, I would dare the crowd to toss me any items they might have in their persons, and watch as their eyes grew wide in awe as the crowd witnessed their possessions tumble and twirl in the air. From time to time I would make a few coins. Enough, that is, to add to the meager income collected by my parents to help us goodbye until the following festival, which at times could be months away. It was during the festival of dance one night, as we were loading our cart and preparing to return home, when an elderly gentleman dressed in a long white robe with a mask of that of a unicorn dangling from his neck approached us and asked me my name. I told him what I was called and asked the purpose for his visit. He bowed his head and smiled then explained to me he was part of a troupe that traveled with the festivals performing various morality plays, which were immensely popular at the time, though they had been known to put on a comedy, yet the demand and offering was great enough. However, a most unfortunate thing had recently happened, hence his visit. The member of his troupe, who performs tricks to entertain the crowd before the show and during intermissions, had recently injured themselves, and they were in need of a replacement and if I was interested, he would like to extend an invitation to me to join his group. The decision, of course, was not as difficult as one might imagine, but the prospect of one less mouth to feed for my parents, and the extra coin I would be making throughout the season was more than enough to convince me. The next morning, as my parents rode back to the small plot of land, I was sitting atop costumes and pillows as we made our way to the next town. Looking back these many years later, I am not sure if I would have made the same decision again, though I am certain my trajectory would have been altered had I not agreed to join the group. Initially my presence was rather awkward, as I would spend the first week stumbling around unsure of what to do or how I could help, as I grew accustomed to my new lot in life. But as the weeks were on and we continued traveling from town to town, we all fell into our new routines, and whatever resentment the other players might have had for me soon dissipated for they grew comfortable enough with me to offer me a role on stage with them to perform in a new play the leader of our troupe had just purchased, entitled The Pelican and the Wasp. It was a comedy of source about a wasp who, believing he should also be allowed to deliver newborns, grows jealous and finally declares inventions, see Pelican, thou aren't the only beast who can produce bumps. Much to our surprise, the play was a hit, and each time we performed it the crowds grew larger and larger and soon we were receiving requests to perform the play at private parties. And while the invitations were always rejected, for their locations would require weeks of being on the road for only a small amount of pay in return, there was one letter from a rather wealthy lord who was celebrating the third year of his business that struck us as promising, for not only was he promising four times a usual fee, but travel and lodgings would also be taken care of. After a quick vote it was decided that this was indeed something worth pursuing. The following morning we packed and made our way to the docks and boarded that forsaken ship, not knowing what was to come. The journey, which required us to travel around the southern region to the west, was only to take a little over a month, and the ship, as well as ourselves, were equipped with the supplies sparingly, but accordingly. The first few days after pushing off were rather monotonous, and very little happened to take note of. We spent our time rehearsing or roaming around the deck, watching the ship tear through the sea while the waves dropped and rippled off into the distance. The sky was clear and windy, and the captain triumphantly told us we would make port several days ahead of schedule. With this information, the crew became a little more relaxed and rations slightly increased. The atmosphere was filled with good cheer and merriment. Then one afternoon, about a week and a half out at sea, dark clouds emerged from the horizon and hung themselves above the mass while low rumblings echoed around us the storm followed quickly enough and for two days we were bombarded with rain and wind screams from the crew could be heard all day and night as they fought against the walls of water collapsing around them and the sounds of snapping and the breaking of wood and rope could be heard throughout after only a few hours the helm had been abandoned for whatever anchor they used to tie down the wheel to keep the ship steady and on course would prove inadequate and it spun back and forth as though it had a mind of its own. For the next day and a half, the helm would remain unsupervised. I, with the rest of the troop, was huddled down below, wondering if I was ever to return home. After two days of exhausting chaos, stillness settled in and we emerged for the first time from below deck to see the sun hanging in the sky and the seawater weakly lapping against the side of the ship. It didn't take long for the navigator to determine we had been blown well off course, by days or even a week, thereby making us, in effect, lost. Panic, as you can imagine, spread throughout the crew and ourselves, for we all came to the same realization once we learned of our dire situation, and that was the dwindling supply of food and fresh water. And while our supplies and the crews were initially separate, it was determined, under the circumstances, that they should be combined with a cook being appointed the night watchman to ensure the last of our supplies were doled out evenly, for who knows how long our voyage would last. With the final arrangements made, we all dispersed to our daily duties. Over the course of the next few days, things went as expected, and a solemn mood was felt, and there was very little excitement to be had. That is, until one morning when we were awoken by shoutings and sounds of struggle above us on the deck. When we reached the deck it was as though we had stepped into a trial that had already begun, for the captain stood at the helm looking down at the crew who were circling around the cabin's assistant, wrist clad in chains. We would learn later, as the assistant was being dragged down to the brig, that the poor boy had been caught stealing food when the cook left to relieve himself, and even though he begged for forgiveness, stating that the hunger had driven him to commit such a crime, The captain showed no mercy and decreed that the prisoner would be chained to the wall at the bottom of the ship. This was done as commanded, and though it seemed like an apt punishment early in the day, it later became a burden to those sleeping near where the assistant was being held, for all night we could hear his weeping and banging the chain against the wall. We begged him to cease, to allow us to sleep in peace, that he would be freed as soon as he quieted and showed remorse. This was all to no avail, for night after night our sleep would be interrupted by the chain and the weeping, until one morning when we awoken feeling more rested than usual. The boy had died during the night, no doubt due to starvation and neglect. Later in the day a short service was held for the boy with a few of the crew offering words of praise, and as the captain recited a traditional poem, usually reserved for those who perish at sea, the body, now cleaned and wrapped in white, was dumped into the water. We watched in silence as the body floated away into the distance, but no sooner had it left our sights when we returned to our daily routines, hoping to forget about the unfortunate events and doing what we could to steer us back on the correct course. But forgetting wouldn't be given to us so easily, for not long after the boy's burial at sea, rumors began to circulate that the assistant had been seen pacing about the deck late at night. It is without effort easy to dismiss such claims, especially given our current circumstances. But when the three crew members who had been tasked with keeping watch throughout the night were questioned further, they each insisted it was indeed the boy. But as soon as they approached him, he would quickly vanish below deck. When it was suggested that they possibly saw a ghost, one of the night crew shook their head and implied, Nay, what we saw was flesh and bone. Doubt and speculation spread among us with each of us having their own ideas as to what was witnessed late at night. Though all doubt and speculation would come to an end when our sleep was once again interrupted by the sounds of chains banging against the walls of the ship. There was no need to tell you how much fear had gripped us when he heard that sound. A few of the braver amongst us removed themselves from their cots and made their way towards the brig, only to find, to their own shock, that it was occupied by the very same boy who he had tossed into the sea only days earlier. And those who had looked upon the boy in the cell confirmed what the night crew had already told us. This was no apparition come to haunt us, no, rather, the captain's assistant had somehow returned to the ship and his cell, and had taken it upon himself to torment us further with the chain against the wall, with no further evidence being needed. There came a torrent of screams and yells as the last of us flung themselves from our beds and raced pushing and scratching to the top of the deck, where we waited for any signs that the resurrected boy was following us. He had not, for as we stood there in the darkness and let the night air weave its way between us, we could still hear the chains beating against the side of the ship, and we spent the rest of the night listening to it in silence. Our reprieve from the sound came as the sun began to rise though by then we had all been standing on the deck for several hours, afraid to move. Even after the noise had ceased, it was still some time before we could resume breathing normally and move about. A few went below to collect their tools or other items needed for their daily duties, and though they refused to linger any longer than was necessary, a couple did come back with stories that the boy had left his confinement and was seen lurking in the more darker and damper areas below deck. Throughout the rest of the afternoon, barely a word was spoken by the crew or ourselves, and it was not uncommon to see someone staring from time to time at the ladder leading down below, as though waiting for whatever now was wandering in the shadows to make its presence known in the light. And though, as the day went on, some of the terror we felt the night prior had begun to wane, it quickly re-emerged as the sun began its descent, the moon started its rise. We were all exhausted, to say the least but not a person was looking forward to their bed and sleep. The evening meal, once enjoyed in our quarters and used to signify the ending of the day, was now served and eaten upon the main deck, with a few of the crew maintaining their duties well into the night, while the rest grouped together at a point furthest away from the opening that leads below. The night proceeded onward, and for some time nothing was heard, but as the moon reached its full height and the wind picked up, We turned in horror as the chain began to rattle and once again bang against the wall. Perhaps the madness was brought on by the lack of food and sleep, or perhaps it was a result of the boy in the cage itself. But the fury which a few individuals acted with, and with such swiftness, makes one believe some other force was at play. As the sounds of the chain grew louder, a group of us armed with lanterns forced ourselves below and towards the brig where the thing was dragged from its imprisonment so violently the chain was pulled from the wall. The boy's hands were bound and the chain being removed from his legs was wrapped around his torso and tightly secured while cannonballs were stuffed in his pockets. Once this was complete, the body was draped across the bow before finally being pushed into the sea. We gathered and pushed against the edge, lowering our lanterns as far as they could go and in the lamp and moonlight, the body floated for a moment before succumbing to the weight of the chains and cannonballs. For a brief moment, the head shifted to face us, and it was in that flickering light I caught a glimpse of his eyes as they slowly sank below. Those eyes, shallow, pale, and distant. And thus we conclude The Undertaker's Tale. The three companions, drowsy and full, drifted off one by one to sleep in dreams. The forest around them shook and twitched, while dozens of glittering eyes watched them from outside the circle, yet ever-changing boundaries of the firelight. Our three companions rose at dawn, stretched, and having breakfast on porridge, bits of bread and water, found themselves back on the trail heading towards their destination. The three were in high spirits, for the sun was high and the weather was cool, They passed the time telling each other jokes and pointing to familiar landmarks in the distance. They stopped briefly only to inquire about the purchasing of some eggs for their lunch. When there was none to be had, they continued on unbroken with good cheer and laughter. It was not long after midday when the rock and dirt trail transformed into stone with deep grooves running parallel at the edges. A few miles later, the three friends entered the town and riding past the inn with the small garden and two lions guarding the door in the archives, made their way up to the hill to the manor in which the anniversary celebration was to take place. Looking down from her second-story window, a young girl watched as the guests rode up the hill towards the front gates, where they would be presently greeted by the main servant. Dozens of guests had already arrived, and each had been observed by her. As our three companions made the final turn up the hill, a door opened behind the child, and a woman, dressed in purple, entered the room. Resting her hands on the child's shoulders, the woman leaned down and whispered into her ear, You can't be in here all day, Florence. I think it's time you go play. The child nodded and locked hand in hand. The two exited the room and down the hall of the manor.